Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, we will first of all hear from a Moldovan diplomat about how the BRI or the Belt and Road Initiative has benefited his country. U.S. President Joe Biden is going to travel to Israel as a push to open Gaza crossing vouchers. In Poland, a former European Union leader is likely to form a new coalition government after the country's general election. And New Zealand has elected a conservative prime minister after six years of liberal rule. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has held separate meetings with foreign leaders who are here in Beijing for the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation. In a meeting with Kazakh President Kasim Jomat Tokayev, Xi Jinping emphasized the importance of maintaining strong bilateral ties to ensure mutual development and regional stability. In his talks with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orbán. Xi Jinping said that China appreciates Hungary's contribution to the Belt and Road cooperation, and that China is willing to elevate the bilateral ties to new highs. In the meantime, the Chinese leader has also met with leaders of Indonesia, Ethiopia, Serbia, Chile, as well as Papua New Guinea. Guests from over 140 countries are gathering in Beijing for the event. Now, my colleague Zhou Fang earlier had a conversation with Moldovan ambassador to China, Dimitru Balagas, about how the BRI has brought development opportunities to his country. Let's take a listen. This year marks the tenth anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. As a participant of the BRI,、um, how can the Belt and Road Initiative benefit Moldova and Moldovan people? Well,、uh, Moldova holds strategic importance to the Belt and Road Initiative, due to also some of other factors that would give win-win cooperation. First of all, Moldova's participation in BRI opens an opportunity for increasing trade and economic cooperation. The country's agricultural products, wine, textiles, and IT services have the potential to find new markets on, in BRI countries, and particularly in China. Moldova's energy sector can benefit from BRI emphasis on energy cooperation. A collaboration in renewable energy, in electricity transmission, energy infrastructure projects can help Moldova to diversify its energy resources and to improve energy security. The BRI promotes cultural exchange and people-to-people connectivities. Connectivity and Moldova's rich cultural heritage, historical sites, and tourist potential can attract Chinese tourists and foster cultural understanding between two nations. China was the first Asian market for Moldovan wine,、uh, and I guess the sales have been increasing in recent years. And、uh, what are your expectations for the future bilateral wine trade? First of all, increasing the demand of Moldovan wine,、uh, which has gained recognition and popularity in China, and the demand for high-quality wine is expected to continue growing. As Chinese consumers become more knowledgeable and appreciative of different、uh, wine varieties, Moldova's diverse range of wines can accede、uh, to their evolving preferences. 
Second, uh, we can mark, may speak about market expansion. With China being one of the biggest Asian markets for Mulan wine, there is a room for further market expansion. Efforts, efforts promote to Moldovan wines through trade fairs, exhibitions, uh, marketing campaigns, and can help raise awareness and increase market penetration in different regions of China. A trade facilitation. I think that uh, streamlining uh, custom procedures and ensuring efficient logistics can also contribute to a smoother flow of Moldovan wine to Chinese market. Collaboration and partnership. It's another issue which is important. Uh, strengthening collaboration between Moldovan and Chinese uh, wine producers, between distributors, between importers can foster long-term partnership. Uh, joint ventures, knowledge sharing and exchange of programs can uh, help both sides capitalize on their perspective strengths or, and create mutual beneficial opportunities for the wine trade. And of course, uh, product diversity. Moldova's wine industry has the potential to offer a wide variety of wines of, on, to the Chinese markets, uh, some of which are exclusively to our region. And also, we realize at all levels that uh, when working effectively, e-commerce and cross-border trade has the potential to enhance the overall economy and to drive up export. We know Moldova is a European country, but it's also near Asia. Then what are some of your country's advantages in attracting cooperation and investment from China, especially in terms of policy and geographical position? Yes, you're absolutely right. Moldova is situated in the center of Europe and making it a crucial transit point for trade and transportation along the BRI. Its location provides a gateway for goods from flowing between Asia and Europe and enhancing regional connectivity. A huge advantage is most that, uh, that all the destination to the European Union country or Commonwealth of the independent states can be reached within two truck days or one to three hour flights from Moldova. Another big advantage is that recently the European Union accepted the Republic of Moldova as a candidate stage for joining the EU, which leads to a huge number of uh, new facilities and booths of new settlements. Not less important is that Moldova has signed 43 free trade agreements with European Union countries, with former Soviet Union countries, with Georgia, with Ukraine, with all the countries from Central Europe. And uh, this can open a market to almost a billion of new consumers for goods because of many industries are right now in their full development process. China would have less competition than in other neighborhood. For example, producing a good in China and distributing it to the EU, Chinese product will be taxed. But when assembling the same goods in Moldova from Chinese spare part and receiving the label made of Moldova, it, will, it would significantly increase access to a huge European market by not paying import custom duties. Actually, nowadays, not many people in China know much about Moldova. Then how necessary is it for both sides to help the people better understand each other? And to achieve that, what could be done? I consider it truly necessary to the, for the people of Moldova and China to better understand each other. Some of the ways in order to achieve this could be, for example, organizing different cultural festivals, exhibitions, art exhibitions, film screening and music concerts and some other activities which will show cultural her heritage of both countries. Exchange of programs for students and scholars also can be a great way to 
know each other better. This program, uh, program can uh, provide first-hand experience and lifestyle in education system and culture of the host country. I think another issue could be encouraging of learning language. Uh, I mean, to learn Mandarin in Moldova or to learn Romanian in China, it is also uh, quite interesting and will facilitate the process of communication between uh, people of two countries. And of course, encouraging tourism between two countries can lead to better understanding. This can be achieved through multi-promotional campaign and developing tour package that highlights the unique attraction of the countries of Moldova and China. All of them are just a few short ideas, but there are so many more. And uh, by this, by implementing at least of these uh, few ideas, Moldova and China can help their people gain a deep understanding of each other, uh, of each other countries, and uh, thereby strengthening their bilateral relationship. The BRI is now 10 years old. Uh, what are your expectations for the future of this initiative and what cooperation potential and prospects do you see between the two sides in the future? Well, from my point of view, Bureau have a bright future. Uh, but at the same time, you speak about Moldova-China relations. I think there are a few sectors where we may be much more interested or to develop more projects than now. First of all, it's of, of course, infrastructure development, a key aspect in Moldova where Moldova can benefit from Chinese expertise and investment in area. China's experience in building, in building more modern transport network, including roads, railways, ports, can greatly contribute to Moldova's infrastructure development or our goals which we have. Enhancing connectivity will not only facilitate trade and investment, but also will promote tourism, cultural exchange between our two nations. One ambitious project idea would be the creation of a hub for transporting, transporting goods from China to Europe and vice versa. As concerns economic cooperation, uh, of course, also could be developed in the area of trade, in the area of investment. And uh, Moldova has a rich agricultural sector, while China has a vast, cons vast consumer market. My country is, is well known for uh, food production of oil, of organic fruits and vegetables. Produced in Moldova, essential or medical plants could be used by Chinese traditional medicine, and the cooperation in the field of tourism can be also of mutual benefits. Moldova's unique cultural heritage, historical sites, natural landscape can attract Chinese seeking new experience. Uh, by promoting tourist exchange and facilitating travel, both, both countries can benefit from increasing people-to-people -people interaction and economic growth in the tourism sector. We discuss this issue with a few Chinese companies to introduce Moldova in their European rules. We know in recent years we've seen increasing global uncertainties. Then with the increasing global uncertainties, how would you evaluate the cooperation under the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, cooperation between the Belt and Road Initiative plays a significant role in increasing uncertainties in the world, global uncertainties which we have, which we face today. And uh, this initiative promotes uh, connectivity, economic development, people-to-people -people exchange, cultural exchange, which can enhance stabilities and stability and resilience in an uncertain world. It fosters cooperation among nations. It fosters facilitation of flows, the flows of goods, ideas, and resources, which is crucial in times of uncertainty. 
Actually, besides the BRI, China has also proposed other initiatives such as the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Civilization Initiative, and building a community with a shared future for mankind. Uh, what do you make of these initiatives, especially given the current international circumstances? Well, I think that uh, all these initiatives are very important. Beyond the Belt and Road Initiative, this initiative reflects China's commitment to global stability, to sustainable development, to harmonious coexistence, which reflects its desire to contribute to global development, security and cooperation. In the context of current international circumstances, it's crucial for all nations to work together. And these initiatives can provide valuable platform for fostering further discussions and collaborations to promote a peaceful and prosperous world. That was Ambassador of Moldova to China, Mr. Dimitri Bragas, on bilateral cooperation under the BRI. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. I am Dan Wang. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. U.S. President Joe Biden will travel to Israel on Wednesday to try to influence the country's conduct of war against Hamas. Speaking from Tel Aviv, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the U.S. and Israel had agreed to develop a plan to get the humanitarian assistance to reach civilians in the Gaza Strip. Blinken announced Biden's trip after a U.S.-led effort to allow aid into Gaza faltered. And after visiting Israel, President Biden is set to travel to Amman to meet with the leaders of Jordan and Egypt. He will also meet with Palestinian President Mohammed Abbas during a one-day trip to that region. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Huiyao, President of the think tank Center for China and Globalization. Welcome back. Thank you. So the last time、uh, Biden made a last-minute kind of a secretive foreign trip was back in February this year when he visited Kiev of、uh, Ukraine around the one-year anniversary of the outbreak of the Russia-Ukraine conflict.、Uh, this time around, in your observation, what do you read from Biden's decision to travel to the Middle East by himself? Yes,、uh, thank you. I, I think that、uh, you know because the situation is really get out of control and there's still uh, uh, the crisis is still deepening and、uh, and this is really unexpected. You know this uh, this uh, uh, violent uh, conflict. Uh, you know、uh, and, and also <clears throat> you know China already has said that they, they denounce all、uh, violence and、yeah. uh, and so so this is really.、Uh, Uh, a situation that is get the attention of the world, and I think, you know, of course, U.S. being the, the largest uh, uh, country, uh, politically, economically, probably still in the world, and、uh, and of course, historically, U.S. has been deeply involved in the Middle East region. So I think it's good that、uh, President Biden make a personal visit there, and、uh, 
uh, talk to both sides and uh, and trying to also uh, provide uh, humanitarian aid to, to the region uh, so that uh, you know this thing can be somewhat uh, under some kind of a dialogue so 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 I think that for that part I, I personally think this is uh, still uh, very much uh, welcome. Mm. I know he's talking to Israel. He's going to talk to Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian president. Yeah. So, so we hope that he's going to take the message from both sides and and really play a, a, a important role to calm down the situation and let humanitarian mm. uh, aid and to, to filter into this region and also uh, to stop the uh, the uh, escalating of the of the of the crisis. Now, actually, according to Anthony Blinken. Mr. Biden will affirm, uh, quote, the U.S. solidarity with Israel and a a sort of ironclad U.S. commitment to the country's security, unquote. So, how do you think such a rhetoric on the U.S. part might influence Israel's upcoming moves、uh, towards Gaza? Yeah, that, that's that's probably true because I think you know,、uh, as you know that.、Uh, The Jewish population in the U.S. and and historically uh, has a uh, you know big policy impact in the U.S. and、uh, and and also in Western countries in general. But、uh, but on the other hand, you know, U.S. is involved on on this、uh, trying to make a peace between、uh, Israel and the Palestinians since、uh, President Clinton time and、uh, and even longer than that. So. So I think that、uh, the, the, the 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 gesture that U.S. is taking to to go to the、uh, region and meet the both sides、uh, is is important. And I also I noticed that、uh, you know Secretary Blinken and China Foreign Minister Wang Yi has actually made a phone call on this issue, and both of them have said you know maybe the two-state uh, uh, solution is still、uh, the 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 best、uh, way to to handle this situation. So I hope that.、Uh, His visit can can make some generate some some progress in terms of、uh, you know、uh, let's stop this、uh, you know、uh, crisis and, and this conflict and、uh, and condemn all forms of of violence you know、uh, no matter what what causes on that so so I I, I would think that、uh, you know now all the international community of course U.S. is、uh, President Biden is visiting Secretary Blinken is visiting but also China has making calls on on, on both sides too <laughs> Israel and Palestinians. And of course, China also established standing envoy ambassador in Jai there. So, so I, I would think you know that all international communities should work together to really solve the crisis. And、uh, and and China has already done uh, the uh, in the past have have calmed down on the on the Saudi Arabia and Iran for for their uh, peace uh, uh, you know yeah,、uh, talks. And, yeah. So so I think we we probably should uh, should uh, all work together to towards that objective to to really. Solve this uh, uh, urgent humanitarian crisis which happening、mm. now. Now, of course, we would everybody of us should wish for the best and hope for the best. But realistically speaking, Doctor One, in your observation, what do you think Biden's trip will be able to accomplish? And what do you think are the are some of the issues that might be a little beyond the control of Biden? Well, I, I think you know the the crisis is really is, is alarming, really、uh, deeply. For example, I mean, <coughs> Gaza Strip probably is, is running out of、uh, water or <laughs> food, and also UN is wants to、uh, open the access to that. So I hope that、uh, President Biden's visit,、uh, you know, on both sides, you know, on Israel and and Jordan, and and、uh, talking with the Egypt President and of course King of Jordan and the President President of Palestinians. 
so that we can have uh, uh, some immediately uh, humanitarian aid to to a crisis where it's two point some million people in the Gaza Strip. And of course, you know, I mean, there's casualties on both sides, which is uh, very unfortunate. And and I think that we should stop this uh, uh, violence. And then maybe, uh, you know, share that, uh, lead that into some kind of a, uh, a dialogue and uh, and uh, let's let's calm down. So so I hope that his visit, maybe if he can play some calm down role, uh, plus China and other EU countries, other other countries in the region are all doing that. Not expand the crisis and, and conflict would be probably the, the best we can hope. And uh, and uh, you know let's not uh, deepen this and expand this and then make it a really a big uh, uh, a conflict in the region because we already have too many conflicts in the world. We don't want to have. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, newly uh, uh, unstopped the crisis that uh, that is looming large, and that we really need to avoid that. Mm. So, one observation by some analysts is that Biden, by making this upcoming trip to the region, also wants to send a signal or send a send a warning to Iran and the Hezbollah in Lebanon. About becoming further engaged in this、uh, conflict or crisis in Gaza,、um, how do you think Biden's trip might be perceived by Iran and Hezbollah? Well, you know, it's possible. I mean,、uh, I, because the U.S. already sent an aircraft carrier in that region already. I mean,、mm. <laughs> they, they said they, they wanted to turn、uh, some other. Country's involvement, but I think you know fundamentally we need to really、uh, first to stop the current crisis,、uh, which、uh, you know very unfortunately uh, uh, you know、uh, caused by by this violence. But then, then we really need to find out the roots of the problem, you know, because and and then like、uh, Secretary Blinken and Minister Wang is saying, you know, let's let's all support this two-state、uh, solution that we should really improve on those.、Uh, Uh, concept and dialogues, and and then、uh, find a way. And also, the, the UN should be supported to 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 intervene and then provide all the、uh, necessary support. Red Cross of international should be supported to do that. So, so I think we don't need another、uh, you know big crisis、uh, in the Middle East because the Middle East we we can really、uh, we've seen the reconcile between Iran and the Saudis, and also we we, we haven't seen any escalation in the past years. So this is really unfortunate that we we want to. Uh, all the international community, including U.S., should, should really do its best to uh, uh, really uh, calm down and、uh, and then you know let this、uh, not really get out of control. I mean, we, I mean,、yeah. including China. I mean, all are doing its best, and I hope that they they can really work together to send a message that、mm. we all should calm down and and work for peace.、Mm. So, in a bigger picture sense, Doctor Wan, do you think? The the ongoing crisis in the Gaza Strip is somehow、um, forcing a new assessment of the Biden administration's immediate foreign policy priorities. Well, I think this certainly is, is caught everybody by surprise. You know, you, you know, we we can see how how deeply、uh, the problem there that just just probably. Neglected by 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 the international community, and、uh, but on the other hand, I think now U.S. is facing another election year, and then also domestically they have、uh, you know senators、uh, leaders still in in the in the in the, in the making、uh, hasn't really decided. There's a lot of domestic challenges that I think U.S. has to face. You know the world is、uh, economy is slowing down, and and we still have this、uh, Russian war and, and on the Ukraine. You know still happening and.、Uh, So, so I think U.S. probably has too many fronts now. I mean, domestically,、uh, 
because uh, there's mm. internationally and Ukraine now have this Middle East crisis. So I think no country wants to have so many crises, I mean, including China. So we have to work together as an international community. We should not really <laughs> de- decouple or de-risk and, and uh, you know, we need to fight uh, uh, those, uh, those uh, you know, uh, urgent uh, crises that face the humankind, and we want to avoid that. So I think it's important U.S., China, EU, and all those countries work together uh, with UN, with the National you know, Security Council to really uh, to, 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 to stop this uh, ongoing crisis and then let, uh, let uh, order and, uh, and also finally have some solution on the table to solve this uh, in, in the long term. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. As always, that was Dr. Wang Huiyao, president of the think tank Center for China and Globalization. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. In Poland, opposition parties appear to have gained enough votes in the general election to oust the ruling Law and Justice Party. With more than 99% of the votes counted now, the ruling party is leading with over 35%, while the opposition's civic coalition led by Donald Tusk has over 30%. The Law and Justice Party is likely to be offered a chance to form a government. However, opinion polls have shown that the party, the ruling party, will fail to gain enough seats in order to form a majority parliament. On the other hand, Civic Coalition, this uh, opposition party, will look to form a government with two other parties, which would enable them to easily reach a majority. So joining us now on the line is Professor Tui Hongjian from the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So actually, in the last election back in the year 2019, uh, the Law and Justice Party, this ruling party, uh, was able to warn, was able to win nearly 44% of the votes. Why do you think? Support for the party has shrunk now. Uh, as we know, uh, after the uh, eight years uh, ruling for this uh, uh, party, as now, yes, it uh, did some good job, especially to help uh, people enjoy some uh, economic growth in the past eight years. But also at the same time, uh, some uh, problems or difficulties for the government, uh, including, as we know, uh, there are always uh, tensions between the Polish government and also the ruling party and the European Union institutions and some other European countries like uh, France and Germany. So it uh, gives um, uh, big barriers for uh, Polish government to get some more uh, financial assistance from the European Union. And also at the same time, as we know, there are always uh, very big pressures from uh, uh, opposing parties in Poland and so and also from uh, European Union, some other countries on this uh, so-called uh, uh, judicial reform and also political reform. So this uh, government has been 
labeled as uh, by some other European countries as mm. a so-called illiberal democracy. So I think it gives a very uh, political, very big political, uh, you know, difficulties. Mm. And the third is, uh, as we know, this government has a uh, you know tough attitude towards these uh, immigration uh, issues from uh, European Union, but uh, in the practice. Uh, it has been uh, criticized by the people uh, with a double standard uh, policy deal with this um, uh, immigration issue. So some political uh, pressures and also some suffering economically from the uh, Ukraine crisis, I think it gives some, you know, common, uh, you know, burden and there was a common challenge to this uh, ruling party. Mm. So Donald Tusk, uh, we are pretty familiar with uh, this person. He is uh, the opposition leader. He is a former prime minister of Poland. Now he has really campaigned on a platform that this is uh, the last chance to save democracy. That's his, you know, statement and rhetoric. As the Law and Justice Party is accused by many people of eroding the judicial independence in Poland. So, what is your understanding of this particular issue? And do you think a prospect of Donald Tusk returning to the office as prime minister would mean that democracy is back, or democracy has been saved in Poland? So to some degree, certainly, it's a kind of a victory for this, uh, as we know, so-called uh, central right-wing party uh, for the uh, civic coalition and its uh, partners. As we know, uh, this um, uh, party has uh, has been a pro-European Union and also pro-so-called uh, democracy uh, attitude uh, in the past years. But another problem is it depends on how could be the uh, definition or understanding about a democracy. I think for this um, uh, ruling party, I mean the law and the justice part, they think that uh, yes, to help the national interests and to give some more economic benefits to the average people, it would be, a, you know, the biggest democracy. But for uh, some other uh, opposing parties like uh, Civic Coalition, they think that uh, uh, they should follow up some uh, so-called uh, uh, democratic principles, especially dominated by European Union or some other European countries. Of course, I think that uh, maybe uh, this so-called victory uh, by uh, uh, civic uh, coalition uh, would be a change. I mean, for this um, uh, political attitude from Poland towards so-called democracy and uh, its relations with the European Union, but I don't think it's so. It would be so smooth for uh, for the maybe the new government to deal with some uh, difficult issues, including immigration or even economic growth. Uh, Perhaps the um, uh, warm-up of the uh, relations with the European Union will give some uh, more financial assistance to uh, Poland in future. But uh, how could it uh, how could it be uh, transferred into a real, I mean, economic benefits? I think it, it would be also a big test for this uh, civic coalition and. Uh, Maybe the forthcoming new government. Mm. So one observation is that whoever is going to to be leading the next Polish government will maintain 
the support of Poland towards its neighbor Ukraine.、Uh, do you agree in this regard? And if this general support、uh, on the part of Poland、uh, towards the Ukrainians will remain unchanged, what about some specific issues like this、uh, dispute over? Uh, the Ukraine grain imports, as well as Poland's recent decision to stop supplying weapons to Ukraine. Hmm. Actually, though, once the civic coalition to take the power from the、uh, uh, lower and just party become a ruling party and also、uh, organize a, a new government, I think still there are not of、uh, barriers for its、uh, policy.、Uh, firstly, actually, though. For the law and justice、uh, party, it's still the biggest uh, oppo- uh, uh, oppo- opposing party、yeah. in the parliament. So it will make some troubles for the policy. And also at the same time, as we know, the president Mr. Duda is also、uh, a close alliance with the law and justice party. So in the future, I think the president will also maybe become a, a problem for the new government、mm. regarding to its policy towards Ukraine. Uh, to a large degree, it would be in the interests of、uh, Poland to continue its、uh, support to、uh, Ukraine. But now the question is,、uh, in which scale and uh, uh, in which、uh, you know degree? As we know now, it's not only the Polish case、uh, to you know、uh, reduce some、uh, support towards、uh, Ukraine. We can find out the similar situation or the phenomena in some other European countries. So I think that、uh, for this new government in Poland, certainly it will、uh, con- it will try to continue、uh, its、um, policy towards Ukraine. But maybe it will it will also depend on the whole environment and especially from United States, from other you know、uh, European countries. It's、mm. not a, only a single issue for Poland. Okay, thank you very much. That was Professor Cui Hongjian joining us from Beijing Foreign Studies University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. In New Zealand, conservative former business person、uh, Christopher Luxon will be the next prime minister after winning a decisive election. With all the regular votes counted, his national party had 39 percent of the votes. Under the country's voting system, the 53-year-old Luxon plans to form a coalition with the Libertarian ACT party. The outgoing prime minister Chris Hipkins' Labour Party. Got 27 percent of the vote. So joining us now on the line is Chen Xi, assistant to director of New Zealand Study Centre with East China Normal University in Shanghai. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So,、uh, Hipkins,、uh, the outgoing prime minister, has only spent nine months on his current job after taking over from Jacinda Ardern back in January this year. Uh, in the last election back in 2020, Aden actually won by a landslide. Why do you think this time around the Labour Party can't do the same? Yes,、um, I think the election result is mainly due to the political reality of seeking change in New Zealand right now. So for、uh, New Zealanders, they have been concerned with the state of the economy and the spiraling cost of living. Which was the dominant issue during the campaign, and the reason why voters gradually got disappointed with the Labour Party. In the late period of the Labour Party being in the office, 
there were serious problems there with New Zealand's economic policy, um, tax policy, and social welfare. So New Zealanders want to see the situation improved. And it seems that the National Party has offered them a glimmer of hope during the campaign. So just like Christopher Luxon noted in his remark, New Zealanders have reached for hope and voted for change. And even before the election, the approval rating for the Labour Party had been slipping in the polls. Um, and the ruling party had been suffering a kind of um, crisis of confidence. Mm. But Labour has failed to deliver on its promises of transformational change. And mm. the subsequent problems caused by the COVID-19 response in areas of like infrastructure, employment, um, housing price, etc., so when the outgoing New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins took office in January, he was jettisoned some of Arden's more uh, contentious policies and promises and promised a kind of like back to basics approach focused on tackling the spiraling cost of living. Um, but we can see that it has approved that he was unable to repeat the winning of the election in a landslide years ago. Mm. So I guess in some in some of the particular economic uh, issues, uh, Christopher Luxon has promised the tax cuts for those middle income earners, and on the social level, he has promised a a, a tougher crackdown on, on gangs and crimes. Yeah. Now, at the moment, we understand the exact makeup he's uh, of his government is yet mm. to be determined but previously we understand he has served as the chief executive of both Unilever Canada as well as uh, Air New Zealand how do you think his um, previous business background might mean for his uh, style or his governance style as a prime minister mm-hmm yeah, Luxon is relatively uh, new to politics, but he's like a kind of a blank canvas with room left for both expectation and uh, imagination. So he has adopted quite an effective campaign strategy of change and a very um, inspirational slogan of uh, bringing New Zealand back to the right track. So the things he has promised during the campaign, like tax cuts, crackdown crime, and a new turn project to fix the great lock uh, traffic, appear very much to voters. But Luxon made some gaps as well. Uh, as a kind of millionaire or a multimillionaire who owns seven houses, he was accused of being out of touch with the cost of living. Mm. I think uh, in this election, the National Party's victory was a result of voters turning their backs on Labour. So Luxon himself is in lack of political experience and the public has both expectations and doubts about his ability to govern. So the National Party now secures about 40% of the vote, so it must form an alliance with them, like the ACT Party and possibly a third party as well. So the current kind of the uh, economic difficulties in New Zealand were not created solely by the uh, Labour Party, but were built up over years. Problems such as the employment, housing prices, such things are, tra- are, are entrenched. And it is very difficult for the government to have a kind of like a super weapon that can solve the problem once and for all. So mm. after winning the election, there will be more problems for Luxon to solve. And it is still uncertain if he has great political wisdom and governing ability. Mm. So earlier this year, uh, Hipkins, the outgoing prime minister, led a a business delegation on a visit to China. And looking back, it's probably fair to say that his visit at the time was pretty successful and fruitful. Now, of course, from China's perspective, Mm. uh, one question we're concerned is that 
Do you think a change of leadership in the New Zealand government will mean a change in Wellington's China policy?、Mm-hmm. One minute. Yeah. So the New Zealand has always had a had an independent foreign policy. It's not an ally of the United States. We have to say this for, for the very beginning. And after the new government take office, there will be no significant change in the overall policy of maintaining independence among great powers. So during the election campaigns, Hipkins and Luxon reaffirmed a very important consensus between these two parties that China is an important partner of New Zealand, and to develop and promote partnership with China is New Zealand. Constant, a constant national policy, and actually, in relations with China, the two countries have achieved greatly during this year. However, as a member of the Five Eyes in the context of the United States, vigorously promoting the Indo-Pacific strategy, New Zealand is definitely、uh, under pressure. There will there will definitely be some kind of noises in New Zealand on issues such as the South Pacific and the, the South China Sea.、Mm-hmm. It remains to be seen whether smaller right-leaning parties will create problems and whether Luxon, the new prime minister, will have enough political wisdom. But、uh, like you know, New Zealand has long adhered to an independent foreign policy and takes its long-term interest as the fundamental principle of this foreign policy. So, like in recent years, New Zealand has refused to blindly follow the United States and the West. On many issues, so of course there are very kind of like the differences between New China and New Zealand in terms of political system, etc. But it should not be the differences that define the nature and direction of bilateral relationship. So the mutually beneficial cooperation between these two countries enjoys huge momentum and broad prospects. The、mm. two countries should also continue to strengthen communication, coordination, and cooperation in international and regional affairs, and work together to address global challenges such as climate change and etc.、Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. As always, that's Chen Xi joining us from、uh, East China Normal University. You are listening to World Today. Recent industry reports have highlighted China's advances in the cloud computing industry. Data from the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology showed in the first half of this year, the value of China's cloud computing market exceeded 36 billion U.S. dollars.、Uh, that's an increase by more than 40 percent year on year. And in only six months, the revenue of cloud-related businesses of the three major Chinese telecommunication operators、uh, caught up with almost 80% of the whole-year revenue in 2022. And Chinese tech firms are also expanding their business overseas, including in Southeast Asia. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. So first, Ina, tell us what is cloud computing and what can it do to change people's work and life. How important is this industry? It's extremely important, and it's going to change your life.、Um, cloud computing is the ability to do computations and store things online and access them online. It increases the availability of your data and also your ability to compute things. Uh, scalability. I mean, you can store as much data as you want or are willing to pay for, and you can also access the ability to compute supercomputers, or literally, even if you have a, just a simple phone, they're now available、uh, to you. Very much more efficient, easier to put a supercomputer on the on the cloud and use it、uh, when people need it, as opposed to trying to put one in everybody's phone. Um, it also ties into this whole area of big data access and mining.、Uh, remember, we've always talked about communications,、uh, about、uh, you know number crunching, the ability to compute、uh, that information. 
and sensors, this ongoing real-time data collection that will now be available uh, to people so that they can you know, manage their factory, their finances, uh, their businesses, so many things. Their um, municipalities will be able to uh, manage traffic flows uh, within their cities to also manage, uh, you know, how quickly things have to be uh, repaired because the sensors will tell them so they don't wait until something breaks. They can get in and do preventive maintenance saving uh, costs. So it's it's going to be a, a very big uh, issue. It also brings into focus this idea of software as a service. Mm-hmm. And in the first half of this year, the value of China's cloud computing market exceeded 36 billion U.S. dollars. So what's the market potential in the near future and who are the major players in China? Well, the ma- ma- major pay- players are Huawei and Baidu and Alibaba. I mean, there's, there's no surprise there. Uh, what's interesting is that these are very large players. And this is an area where, yes, you do need uh, a tremendous amount of uh, investment. Uh, these servers have to be set up. Uh, they have to be manned. Uh, they have to be regulated. Um, so they're the big players. In terms of uh, the future, uh, you've already seen a 20, almost, well, 21.3% increase in investment um, in uh, cloud uh, computing, mainly because of the uh, chat GPT. Everybody just got very, very excited about that. And that has led to a lot of people throwing money in it. But uh, it's been, uh, you know, <laughs> it's been very fruitful. Uh, you start looking at, uh, you know, the the revenue increases. China, uh, it was estimated in a McKinsey report that cloud computing would triple uh, by 2025. China is well ahead of that. Um, 80, it's up 80% in the first six months alone this year. So you can expect, um, you know, China to be, to out perform the global index in, in that regard, because China has uh, so many advantages in there. And Chinese technology and internet firms are also expanding their business overseas, including in Southeast Asia. So what's their advantages in this region? Well, obviously, they, you know, they have uh, the, the large size. You know, once you have cloud computing, it's available anywhere where the uh, local governments feel comfortable with you being there. And what I mean by that is you look at the United States, Europe, China. Uh, they're insisting these days that uh, data that is created inside the country or coming into the country has to be regulated. Uh, they don't. There's, uh, you know, obviously a lot of uh, bad things that can happen can happen with uh, cloud computing in terms of people getting in there, hacking into people's uh, information, uh, sometimes loss of privacy, loss of money. Um, so those things have to be carefully regulated. But to the extent that you you set up standards, if not globally, then regionally, uh, South, with like, for instance, Southeast Asia, then you can start sharing these services. And it's very easy because it's, they, there's really no differential between them except where the data is stored and uh, where it's, it's being processed and who it can be sent to. Mm-hmm. And what's the global landscape of the cloud computing industry? Is there fierce competition? Tell us more about that. 
Yes, I mean, there is. Everybody's uh, in there. You have all the American firms, Google, Amazon, et cetera, the, 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 the usual suspects, as we say. Um, there, there are players in Europe as well, but they're not as well situated. Um, the question is, does this become an area where uh, basically you, you, countries um, or areas like the EU will decide that they want to have local champions, that they want to close off their markets to other entities? What invariably happens in that case is the price goes up and the mm. performance goes down. I mean, you only have to look at Deutsche Telekom. You know, everyone thinks Germany is so advanced, but actually it's number 23 out of 26 in terms of Internet access and speed. And people would be surprised by that. But because it's a, a monopoly, um, they're very reticent to invest in new technologies. They'd rather wait and get as much benefit as they can from their existing um, investments. So, you know, these these are things that um, uh, countries will have to kind of wrestle with. Do they want these very big players controlling so much information? Uh, how do you how do you deal with that? And there, of, of course, as I mentioned earlier, dangers. Mm-hmm. And what does the advancement of the cloud computing mean for the AI development? Well, it, it's a vehicle. Uh, AI is best. Uh, when it's connected to big data. Uh, obviously, if you want to know the most updated things, it has to be connected to the internet. Uh, it also needs to, con- uh, to learn from huge data sets. So the question is, where can you find data sets? Where can you find customers? Uh, where can you justify the cost? And how do you deliver the service? And obviously, cloud computing is perfectly situated to do it. That's why you're seeing so much interest in terms of investment. Uh, Because of that, people see very clearly that if ChatGPT and um, these regenerative AIs and tools are are in fact um, accepted and useful, they will most likely be delivered uh, through the cloud. Mm-hmm. And recently, the media report says that the U.S. will take steps to prevent American chip makers from selling products to China that circumvents the government's restrictions. So what do you think has prompted the U.S. to update its restrictions of AI chip exports to China? And how do you see the move by the United States? Is that uh, fair competition? <laughs> well, first off, why, why why are they doing this? Because of China's success. They, um, the Congress was truly shaken by the fact that Huawei was out, able to put out a um, a five nanometer chip, a uh, very advanced phone, and they you know they're doubling down on what I would think is a, a failed uh, policy. But be that as it may, you know it's it's really self defeating. Uh, as I said, doubling down on something that isn't working. Uh, the U.S. is pushing itself out of China's market. And and this is something that's of huge concern to the um, existing tech companies in the U.S. They are going to Washington and saying, listen, you're taking the largest market away from us. How are we supposed to uh, invest in R&D when we're not making money? Um, And, you know, the U.S. is no longer a competitive manufacturing market. And so do you think China has the capability for its own technology in the areas like big data, AI and cloud computing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you take the example of Huawei. I mean, Huawei is a, an example. It reflects the reality that, you know, companies have to be able to pivot, um, that, uh, you know, political obstacles and risk is, is out there. It's a known, uh, you know, we have all sorts of things out there. 
but that innovation and core technology is important. It, you know, firms that survive and thrive will be based on their technical and innovation human resources, not just um, capital itself. And Huawei has shown that, and um, that is definitely going to be something that's true in the future. Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. I'm Ding Hun in Beijing. Bye for now.